0: of the entire narrative of these three chapters, the faithfulness of God and His sovereignty. So I'm going to read this section beginning in chapter 7. I'm going to read all the way through 819 because this is what we'll be covering today. Genesis 7, this is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life." So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose above high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills were under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the earth. Both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air, they were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind, a breath to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned into the ark to him for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself and he waited yet another seven days and again he sent the dove out from the ark and the dove came to him in the evening and behold a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Father, help us as we approach this rather large text today that we would have an understanding of what is happening, that we would be looking to the theological and practical implications for our lives. Even though there's a lot of things that we won't be able to say today, I pray that you would drive your truth deep into our hearts as we just asked of you in song. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we begin looking at the theology, as I mentioned last week, I am not a geologist, I am not a scientist. When it comes to those things, there are other uh, individuals that are much better at explaining those than I am. I am hopefully a theologian, and so that's my focus when I preach the Word. But there is something unique that happens in Genesis chapter 7 and 8 that doesn't really happen in other places of Scripture. And that is there are, um, there are five... Actual verses that actually give exact dates. Most of the scripture doesn't do that. It'll just make some general principle of about a time when something takes place. Now, it's not a date that we recognize, because it's a date based upon this man's Noah's life. This man's, the man named Noah, his life, and how long he lived. And so, it's actually how, apparently, how Hebrews began dating things with, like, Noah being year 600, Right? And then 601, 602, 603, and they began to like, reconcile that date. And there are many people who think that that's how they reconciled months. That this ancient calendar, the Hebrew people based upon Noah, um, began to say, you know what? When Noah gets off the ark on the first day of the first month, we're going to call that the new year. Because it's a new time. And there's many who think that that's exactly what's happening and why these dates are important. Either way, it is fascinating. I don't know if you noticed it, but in seven eleven, we see exactly the flood began on the second month, the 17th day of the month in the year 600. That's Noah's 600th year of life. Don't know what that is in our counting today. And then we find that the ark rested according to 8-4 on the 7th month, the 17th day of the month in that same year. And then in 8.5, we see that in this time period between the ark resting, now the waters are receding. And in the 10th month, in the first day of the month that same year, the mountains begin to appear. Now we can start to see the waters going down. And then in verse 13, it says that Noah, and this is when, I think this is the birthday of the world, new world after the flood, the purged world. The first day of the first month, 601, Noah takes off the top of the ark. But he still waits Another two months and another month and 27 days, 227, 601, to leave the ark. For whatever reason, I don't know exactly, maybe it was just really muddy out there. The reality is that the Bible is giving us like these dates and from this we can actually surmise of how long the flood lasted on the earth from the beginning to the end and if you want to really get into the details of this there are all sorts of scholars that would not surprise you that have debated and written all sorts of spilled a lot of ink and killed a lot of trees to like come down and try to pinpoint the exact time of all this and they disagree with each other and they battle back and forth okay we're not going to do that but simply pointing out If somebody asked me One guy wrote, it, wrote this entire essay about it Like detailing all And trying to get all the details And at the end he said So if someone were to ask me How long did the flood last I'd probably say About a year So that's what I'm going to say this day About a year is how long it lasted Some say 380 days Some say 350 days Some say 348 Some say 365 And the main problem is We just don't know how they counted months we don't know how they counted, was it a lunar calendar, a solar calendar, a lunar-solar calendar, like we don't know that sort of stuff. So we're all making guesses here. But it is must be significant, and I think you see it in sort of the chiastic progression. I think you see it that he's trying to say that that things were building up and they got to a kind of a high point, a pinnacle, and then they begin to go back down. And it was about a year of that taking place. And so that's essentially what you see in this this how long did the flood last. So if someone ever asks you how long did the flood last, you can actually go back and say, well, from embarkment to disembarkment, about a year. Now, why does this even matter? One, there is a theological, very brief, quick theological implication here. If you read all of the other histories of the world, the legends of civilizations, the epic of Gilgamesh, the Atrahasian epic, the uh, Aztec works, none of them give dates. It's almost as if God, and through Moses, is rooting this and expressing it to the people of his day and to then to us, that this isn't a legend. This is a historical event. Here's the dating for it. Here's when it happened. You can go back and I'm presuming at the first these early Hebrews reading. You can go back and look at your calendars and talk to people who could talk about these dates. And that sets this account apart from all the myths that are out there and that this is history rooted in historical timeline. But as I said, my purpose is to point out and to work through the theological implications for our lives. From this text of scripture. And so this morning there are five theological truths. Eternal theological truths. About our God that I want to encourage you with. To challenge you with. And to encourage our souls to follow him. And the first one is found in verses 7, 1 through 10. At least partly there. We looked at this in more detail last week. But I see in this text. That God's wisdom is unmatched. Unmatched. This whole narrative is an absolute fascinating display of God's meticulous design, instruction, and implementation of his plan of salvation. In the building of the ark, in the forming of it, in what sort of wood to use, in the preserving of the animals, and thinking about the idea, but they're going to need food. So let's give seven pairs of this kind of animal that is safe for them to eat, the clean animals, because they're going to need it after the world is destroyed by a flood. How are Noah and his family going to survive? Well, I'm going to let them eat animals, and so let's take in 14 sheep instead of just two, Noah. All the meticulous, meticulous nature and the planning that wasn't done by Noah... It was done by God. Now some charge God, I think wrongly, obviously, but they do seek to charge God, and I can see some understanding of callousness in the flood. Man, wiping out all those people. It's a wrong charge. But no one can charge God with ignorance and foolishness. The way he planned this out, the precision in it all. And so in 6.22 we read, and then again in 7 a couple of times, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And we would recognize from that truth that obedience matters, right? But far more than just simply saying obedience matters, who one obeys is the most important thing. We ought to obey. The Almighty with wisdom unmatched. Obeying a fool is deadly. Obeying the all-wise God, that's life-preserving. I can't help but think when I think of God's wisdom unmatched in this account of the flood, of the planning and the design and the implementation, and execution of redemption through Christ. A marvel of sovereign wisdom displayed in the cross. And so not just obedience, but obedience to the faith The New Testament says. Obedience to believe the gospel is essential. To place our faith in wisdom personified. In Jesus Christ. So I see God's wisdom unmatched. And that really is more though from what we looked at last week. This week though as we see this. And I wanted to show you this. We'll work through this a little bit. Remember how last week I mentioned the chiastic structure. And how the the story of Noah and the flood is some massive like parallel chiasm. Remember, chiasm is when you have ascending pairs that parallel, uh, are parallel with descending pairs of ideas, and they point like an arrow to that middle idea. It's a very common Hebrew way of writing. The entire story from 6 all the way through the through middle of chapter 9 is one massive chiasm, and, and Gordon Wenham had given up with like 14 corresponding pairs and showing it it's amazing. I want to show a little bit of that this morning to help us see these theological truths as we look now in this text. And the first thing I notice is for both in the beginning and the end, we see God commanding Noah. In chapter 7 verse 1, God says, "Come into the ark." In chapter 8 verse 16, we see God says to Noah, "Go out of the ark." Now that might seem insignificant, kind of obvious, like you should get in, you should get out. But I do find it fascinating that Noah didn't know when it was going to rain. And if you read the whole account as I did this morning, it actually reads in such a way that it started the deluge the day they entered the ark. It says on that same day, that very same day that they entered the ark, the heavens were opened and the fountains broke up. In other words, there was seven days of waiting, and it doesn't sound like Noah uh, and his family waited that entire seven days in the ark. It reads almost like they were going in in the ark, like doing the last minute things. You ever gone on a trip, and you run into the house and out of the house, and back into the house and out of the house, right? You're like, they're, they're getting everything. You, I don't, they're not just going to be like, okay, let's, we're good. You're going to figure it out. You're going to make sure it's all working. And God had given them a seven-day countdown. All right, in seven days. So they're hurrying to get everything finalized, all the plans, like we gotta get in, make sure, make sure everybody's ready to go, make sure we got the animals, everything's good. And they got in, and then it starts to rain. God commanded them, get in now. But then at the end of the flood... But something really fascinating that happens here is the flood ends and it's this bird, this dove goes out, he gets the olive branch he, and then brings it back and then another time he goes out, doesn't come back. The waters are all dried up the first day of the first month of the 600 first year, right? We, we talked about that. But yet, why does it take Noah 57 more days to leave the ark? Now, like I said, some could surmise that maybe it was really muddy, it's hard to get out, there's a lot going on, but I have a, 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 of an opinion, I have a personal guess in this matter. Um, just how I would think about it, God told me to get in the ark. The day I got in the ark, the earth exploded. I've been in there for a year. I'm not getting out of this ark until God tells me to get out of this ark. And I think what we see here actually in this parallelism Is basically Noah going God, you're in charge You are in charge of this whole thing You tell me go left, I go left You tell me go right, I go right And I don't think it would be that hard To have that attitude after having seen The entire world decimated So I think we have the parallel ideas Of God commanding Noah to enter the ark And leave the ark Is emphasizing Noah's view at least That God, is his authority is final When God speaks, that's what matters. But we have something else in the text that is often pointed out by theologians, and I think it is significant. In chapter 7, when Noah enters the ark, verse 16, says, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. It is significant. It's significant for a couple of reasons. One, this is uh, the the name of God, uh, Yahweh, Lord, and Elohim has been used interchangeably throughout this narrative. It's not only one or the other. But this is the last time that the text will use Yahweh until we get to the covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. And I think that there, there is a theological reason for this. I think as we've said before, Yahweh is the covenant name of God, that personal relational name of God. For his people. And Elohim is more often. And most often used to refer to the almighty power. Of God. And I think we have a kind of a progression here. Yahweh. Shut Noah in. And then Elohim. Poured the deluge. And then Yahweh makes a covenant with him at the end. And I think there's a theological. Implication. Not that they're two different. Same God. But the emphasis changes. From Yahweh to Elohim. After the door is shut. And I think what we have here is the idea that the covenant making and keeping God because he made a covenant to Noah in chapter 6 I will preserve you and your family. He said this is my covenant with you. The covenant making God is the one who shuts his people into salvation. He's the one who does it. The authority is displayed as the Lord of salvation makes the final slamming, closing. You're safe, Noah, because I shut you in. You're safe. We ought not read that as the implication that God is shutting other people out. That's not the intention. Other people are not the focus of any of this narrative. It's always Noah and his family, right? The implication here is that you are sealed in, Noah. You're safe. You're safe. Because I did it. Once again, when I think of God's authority as final in this flood's narrative, I cannot help but be drawn to the divine authority of Christ as fully God displayed in salvation in especially his last days on this earth as he enters Jerusalem cursing the fig tree boldly preaching and forbidding all to enter into the temple unless he allowed them to the uttering of his divine name I am and people falling down in front of that asserting dominance over Pilate you have no authority over me except it were given to you from above no one takes my life I give it up the cry of victory, it is finished. I did it. The yielding up of his own spirit and the confusion that caused, even to the soldiers. You see, Jesus was not a mere victim of unfair circumstances and cruel fates. But as with the deliverance of Noah, Christ is in full control. The authoritativeness of divine salvation for his own people is displayed in Noah and it's displayed in the cross of Christ. Divinely authoritative. And let me tell you, my dear friends... If God is not divinely and fully authoritative in our salvation, in our hope of eternal life, then we have no hope of eternal life. The divine authority is on display. God's wisdom is on display. God's authority is on display. But then, of course, a main aspect of the flood, God's judgment is on display. And so the flood begins. On 227, 600, the flood began. Now, there's a lot in this text that is poetic, um, especially with the days. It's parallelism, the 40 days, 7 days, 150 days. It's very poetic. I'm not saying that's not accurate. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of written in such a way because of its poetry that sometimes makes it a little confusing what was really happening. Um, But we can piece it together, and it becomes very clear that this wasn't a little drizzle, right? This is an explosion of global proportions. It says that the fountains of the earth broke loose. Now, we... This could, we would absolutely believe this, I would believe this, if this were a miracle of God raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. And he does that at times in the scripture, doesn't he? But what's fascinating to me is everything about the flood is very natural. He uses natural means. In other words, there is enough water under the crust of the earth to completely cover the entire earth with water, right? So it's not like God had to come up with water from somewhere. And if we understand, and I think it was probably so, that there was, it had not rained on the earth. And so there's this massive covering of water over the earth in the atmosphere. Very wet, thick atmosphere prior to the flood. And then God collapses that on the earth. That this is both an explosion and implosion at the same time. This is a powerful, watery, chaotic mess. And God is the author of it. And I know that sometimes it is difficult for us to always understand and balance out in our minds an angry God and a loving God at the same time, something we can't seem to comprehend very well, that God can be both without any error in it, because we can't be both without error in it. But there is this significant reality That in the the narrative of the flood, we see divine judgment blasting down. We do see that. See, God in Genesis chapter 6, 3 had seen the exponential wickedness of humanity. And he began his 120-year countdown. It's one of the most chilling verses in the Bible. There are yet 120 years. Only one man and with him are marked for deliverance because of grace alone. But understand that the sovereign God of the universe is no bloviating headmaster. All bark and no bite. The patience has ended. The judgment is come. And when that judgment comes, it comes with ferocity and completeness. As I said before in chapter 7 all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We also read that were, w- w- the floods prevailed for 150 days. Now there are two theories about that. One of them is that it it del- well, there was a deluge of rain for 40 days and 40 nights and a deluge from underneath and then it sort of just kept trickling for another um 100 I got my get my math right 110 days. On the Earth until you got 150 days. That's possible. Um, some, some scholars think it was probably raining the entire 150 days. It was just the 40 days. The initial, initial 40 was the explosion, or it's possible that it rained for a hut for 40 days, 40 nights with the explosion of rain, and then the fountains. It never says they were stopped until the end, so they keep putting out water for the whole 150 days, and that's why the waters keep rising. However, it is the emphasis here is that. Nothing escapes the watery explosion of judgment. It's fierce. It's also complete. The flood prevails. Seven, seventeen through twenty-four teaches us that the waters greatly increased on the earth. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. All the high hills and the whole heaven were created, were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits, about 28 feet upward. That probably means 28 feet above the high hills. The mountains were covered. And mountains and high hills are the same thing. Probably did not have in our world at that time mountains like we see them today. That mountain building would soon come. But the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And it seems very clear that if you want to read this and take this literally, as we ought to read God's word naturally, that this is a global flood that covers the entire world. And there's a completeness to this. The entire world is bathed in judgment. The total destruction of mankind because the total totality of the earth was corrupted, as he'd said. And then he goes on and speaks of the totality here. All flesh that moved on the earth, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed, Macha. he wiped out, he blotted out, he utterly decimated all living things. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and his, those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Now that passage there it says that he, he all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life in chapter 7 there. This is obviously poetic. The same poetry used to describe God's creation of mankind, right? That God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, a nephesh. And so now, those whom God had breathed Rucha into, he now pulled that breath right out of them and filled it with water instead. And they died. He can do this because the one who gives breath to life can take the breath of life away. There's no injustice in that. And we learn the very clear truth that sin demands judgment. And the extent of judgment depends upon the value of the one sinned against. And so the sin against the infinite deserves an infinite penalty. This ferocity, this completeness draws my mind to the ferocity and completeness of judgment against sin Against Jesus. You ever think about how Jesus Christ suffered wrath? We often talk about the divine wrath that he suffered. But do you realize Jesus suffered wrath from all sides? His friends abandoned him. The religious leaders hated him. The political leaders hated him. And if that wasn't enough, the divine sovereign poured wrath on him. There was no escaping the wrath of God on Jesus. There is no ark to protect Jesus Christ from the divine deluge. Instead, he is battered. He is beaten by the divine storm. The only reason why Jesus survives, and people say, well, Jesus didn't survive. He died, but he did, right? Because he rose again. The only reason he was able to survive divine wrath is because he himself is divine. It's the only reason. And so he could absorb, like the ark, he could absorb the wrath that hit him. It beat him. It jostled him around, and yet he survived. He made it through safely through the divine storm. If we were under the flood, if Noah was out of the ark, he wouldn't have survived. But he was in the ark, so he survived. In other words, the ark was the key, right? Jesus is the key. See, the flood and the cross is a sobering reminder to me of the ferocity and the completeness of divine judgment. It's also an encouragement because it causes me to say, man, I need someone, I need something to absorb that wrath for me. And so Jesus absorbed the divine wrath because He's divine, and so he could say, unlike anyone else, he could say, it is complete, it is finished. The reality is one will either see his sins paid for in the ferocity of wrath on Jesus in his place or he will pay for them himself in a flood, in a lake of fire forever. That's the reality. So we see God's wisdom displayed in the flood narrative. We see God's authority displayed in the flood narrative. We see God's judgment Expressed in the flood narrative. But that's not all we see. Parallel to the flood beginning is simply this the flood also ended. And as the waters had prevailed, the flood recedes. And that's what we see in chapter 8. We see the shift. We see this movement. So it's, it's really cool to see the parallelism, right? You see all the mountains are covered by the flood, right? And then the very next thing after chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 5, verses through 12, it's, oh, now the mountains are being uncovered. And it's really neat to see the parallelism because there was 40 days of rain, and then you'll actually see 40 days of waiting. And then you'll see, uh, I think there's probably 150 days total, though maybe a little bit more according to the dating with the, given in the text. and. And you'll see there was seven days of waiting before, and you'll see there's seven days of waiting with the whole bird thing going on afterwards. So it's just really cool parallelism that just bridges in here. But in this latter half of it, this receding of the floodwaters, this is evidence that there is still hope. Now imagine with me for a moment that you're Noah or one of his sons or one of his, one of, or one of the uh, daughters or wife of Noah on the ark, okay? First of all, a year isn't forever. It's not an unreasonable amount of time to make it through this. But it's long. (laughs) And it's starting to get a little bit rough in the ark. What hope do you have? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not that patient. I go a couple of days without sleep, and I say, I'll never sleep again. You know, I'm on a cross country trip around the country and we're halfway there, and I'm saying, Will this trip never end? And that's not even being in an ark for half a year with knowing that there's nothing left out there and thinking, Is this our new normal? Are we, on, are we to live here forever? The only thing that could help you to believe that it wasn't the new normal is you're holding on to the covenant that God made. He said he would deliver you. But you know, in his, we don't know all that he said, but in the words he said, he never actually gave them a timeline as to when they were getting out. He never told them, and this is when it's all going to be okay. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to get out. Guess what's going to happen when you're done? You're going to do this and this, and you're going to have, everything's going to work out just fine. He simply says, I will save you. That's all he said in the covenant. I will preserve you. But there's a lot of questions of what that preservation is going to look like. So could you imagine the hope when little Shem pokes his head out the window and says, Dad, I see the top of a hill. The mountains are appearing. We see some hope. There's there's chance we're going to get out of this thing alive. I don't have to sleep with Japheth anymore. There's, there's, there's a view on the horizon that looks so enticing, but it's kind of slow. Mountains appear, and this is why I believe the whole thing about Noah sending the birds out. I mean, what would you be doing? you be, at the first chance you get, you're like, well, let's see. Let's see if we can get out of this place yet, and so let's throw a center raven out there. He's no good. Let's try a dove. Let's try another one. Let's try him again. There's just, we got to get out of here. But there's hope. It is true what Habakkuk the prophet said. In wrath, he remembered mercy. The rain from heaven was restrained. Verse 2 of chapter 8. The rain from heaven was restrained. God held back his judgment, he pulled it back now. You know, there's an interesting theory here in this receding of the flood. I think it's probably correct. Kenneth Matthews shows us shows us actually um, how there is. A, this is a new creation. And it corresponds, what we see in the latter half, kind of corresponds with the creation week. So in day one of the creation, remember that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep? The Ruha, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep? In chapter 8, verse 1, God sent a wind, a ruha, a spirit, a breath to pass over the deep waters. Hmm, Similar sort of thing. In chapter 1, on the second day of creation, chapter 1 of Genesis, the waters in the sky are divided. In chapter 8, verse 2, the waters in the sky are now stopped. In chapter 1, verse 9, a third day of creation, the ground appears. In chapter 8, through through 5, suddenly the mountains appear. There is no corresponding fourth day because the fourth day was the day God created the sun and moon the stars and those things and nothing was affecting the sun, moon, and stars in the flood account. But if you jump to the fifth day, even the birds are flying over the earth, chapter 1, verse 20. And then what does Noah do? He sends out the first thing that happens in the new creation is the birds of a raven and a dove fly out over the earth. And then you can see in the sixth day, one twenty-four, even using very similar language, remember he made animals and man, every creeping thing that creeps on the face of the earth and all of that. And even in, in very similar language, 8, 8.17, bring out with you every living thing of all the flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Same language he uses, be fruitful, multiply, same thing. And so what, what we learn from this is simply that the divine mercy is seen in a new creation. That's where the divine mercy is seen. That was the hope of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was creation. The hope of Noah and his family, a new creation. Because the old one was corrupted and destroyed. And they need a new one. It is a divine mercy that God would not only stop the judgment. But following the cessation of judgment, he would recreate the world and humanity. And interesting, still the correlation... In chapter 9, he talks about creating mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. When he gives the death penalty for those who take that image. Same language, and the only other time it's used is in Genesis chapter 1. When he created man in his image. I guess I missed one of the days of creation, the seventh day, right? God rested on the seventh day. And what does Noah do? He worships. He worships and worships God at at the altar from the ark. It's cool that really neat and that's perhaps interesting, but ultimately this draws our attention to the truth found in the book of James that mercy does indeed triumph over judgment. That God's mercy triumphs here. His judgment is complete and ferocious, but even in wrath, he remembers mercy, and he brings a new creation, and he creates this new Adam, if you will, this new Noah and his family. And by the way, I think there's even a correspondence there. Noah's three sons, Adam had three sons, and just, there's all these sort of really neat Hebrew parallel things he's doing here. And it's to draw our minds to this reality that the mercy, the hope that we have is not only that God with Holds judgment Our hope is not only It's not only That Jesus died for our sins That's not our only hope Christian Our hope is that the Because Jesus Christ Paid for our sins That his spirit breathes over The waters of our heart Gives us new life And in that new life We become as Paul the apostle says A new creation Awaiting Now newly created internally Awaiting the ultimate new creation externally when he will recreate this heaven and this earth with pure righteousness and sin eradicated. God's mercy is not just in the rescue from our sins and the forgiveness of our past, but in the promise, but in the presence of the spirit of God and the promise of the future with him eternal life. That's the hope. So when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, he makes a way for mercy's hope to be realized. The ark experienced no mercy, but those in it did. Jesus Christ experienced no mercy, but those who are in him do. And the hope of triumphing mercy is the joy of this new Adam within, new creation within, and the promise of the earth to come God's mercy is triumphant. God's wisdom, God's authority, God's judgment, God's mercy. But the point of the entire narrative is the middle. This is the main idea theologically. It's actually lyrically, logically, and theologically the focal point. Lyrically, it's the center of the Hebrew chiasmus. Logically, they couldn't remain in the ark forever. Something had to give. Right? There's a middle point in all of this. And doctrinally, God commanded it. God started it. God judged. God alone will deliver. And so we see these two words that the entire account hinges on God remembered. Why, Azir Elohim? God remembered. Now this remember, it's not call to mind, like to remember that you put a big casserole in the oven. You got to get it out. God didn't say, oh yeah, that's right, I have a boat somewhere down there with some people on it. But God remembered is the idea that God kept his word. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 17. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, Verse 17. God pronounced judgment, he says, and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. I will establish my promise, my covenant. God remembered his promise to Noah. He remembered it. This will be repeated throughout Israel's history as evidence that God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. Kenneth Matthews put it this way. The expression remembered does not mean calling to mind. It is a covenant language designating the covenant fidelity. God is acting in accordance with his earlier promise to Noah. And a guy named Childs says God's remembering always implies his movement toward an object. The essence of God remembering lies in his acting toward someone because of a previous commitment. And Alan Ross said to say God remembered Noah is to simply say that God faithfully kept his promise to Noah. By intervening to end the flood. The second time that waya Kazakhar God remembered Elohim, will be used is in Genesis chapter 9 verse 15 when God says, but scripture says that God remembered Abraham. This guy he made the covenant with, you may be familiar with him. In Exodus 2.24 and 6.5 it says God heard the groaning of his people and he remembered them. Leviticus 26:42, "Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I'll remember the land." Now it's not only that God remembers God Zakar. Why is Zachar? People are called to remember throughout the scripture. It's a common word, to act faithfully, to be grateful to remember God's provision. But in this text, it's very clear that the, the, the object of remembrance is Noah. And the subject, the actor, is God. God keeps his word. You see, God did not save Noah because of Noah's righteous character and steadfastness. But because of his own divine righteous character and steadfastness. Noah's faithfulness did not deliver him. But God's faithfulness did. Beloved, learn this. Learn this. God calls us to faithfulness. But do not think for a moment that God needs your or my faithfulness. But we desperately need his. How did God's faithfulness remember Noah? Noah. Well, he caused a ruha, a wind, to pass over the earth and the waters subside. Everything, as I said before in this story, appears to be quite natural. Now, as I said previously, it doesn't mean if it was supernatural, we wouldn't believe it. There's other things that are supernatural. I'm just pointing out that it's all very natural, natural elements that God uses. But there is no natural wind on the earth that could dry up the flood waters that would cover the high hills in 150 days there is no strong enough gale force winds that could blow that water away and so I believe that in this text where it says God remembers and then immediately says and he caused a ruha to pass over the earth that this is the element of the story where it's stepping out of the natural world into the supernatural world in other words this is is divine breath God breathed On his world once more. And the divine supernatural breath of God. Immediately caused things to change. In the natural world. This is the theologically significant truth. That the Ruha. The spirit of God. Hovered over the waters of creation. In Genesis 1. And God breathed into man. The breath of the spirit. The Ruha of life. And God wipes out everyone who had the Ruha, the spirit, the breath of life. And then we have this. But God breathes again. And the spirit, the Ruha, hovers over the waters of judgment. And because the spirit is hovering over the waters of divine judgment, we are now saved. It is God alone who saves. It is God who breathes life into us. See this evidence of God's miraculous spiritual intervention to deliver man and rescue from judgment, the presence of God's Spirit, those whom God delivers, He breathes into us with divine breath and seals us with the Ruha, the Spirit, forever. Now 2,000 years passed between Noah and Jesus. About, I'm estimating there. And now in those 2,000 years God's new ark hangs on a cruel cross. One he didn't deserve, but was eager to embrace for my sake. Remember how a couple of really wicked criminals are facing that divine judgment as well? They deserve it. They don't deserve to get into the ark. But then, one of those criminals, unexpectedly it seems like, Sees the judgment clearly for the first time. He sees that he deserves it. He sees his wickedness. And he turns to this human ark. Divine ark. And he says, Lord, remember me. Yes, that's the Greek language, but it's the same parallel word in Genesis 8 1 God remembers Lord remember me and just like that just like that God turns to this one and he immediately assures him today you will be with me in paradise we could say proverbially speaking or metaphorically speaking Jesus brought him into the ark. He says, You're safe now, because I remember you. And the thief enters the ark of Jesus, and God sealed him in, and he is saved from God's wrath, not because of anything he did to earn or gain that, but simply because God was faithful to remember this sinner in his plea. That's it. Two years since that thief and I cannot forget how as a guilty, wicked person, knowing I deserved a flood of wrath, was beside myself as a young man with fear, I tried to be a faithful, holy and righteous kid to some degree but because God is merciful on the day he remembered me he breathed on me and in the faithfulness of Christ I am a new creation inside the ark of Jesus awaiting a new creation on the outside waiting for the floodwaters to subside and so my only question for you today is are you with me? God doesn't need your faithfulness. But today you need His. I call on Him to remember you.